there. I'm your friend Bev, host of Stop Psychoanalyzing Me, a podcast about mental health. I interview experts and ask questions about mental disorders that all of us might be curious about. Come join me. I am so excited to have you both on the podcast today. And before we begin our very interesting discussion, I was wondering if you could each tell me a bit about yourselves. So Gabriella, if you'd like to go first. Yeah, sure. So I'm Gabriella. I'm a registered social worker, psychotherapist and consultant. I work in acute care hospital as a perinatal social worker. And I also have my own private practice where I see individuals and couples for private therapy and I consult on projects related to parenting with a disability and accessibility and aspects like that. Very exciting. Thank you for being here. And what about you, Kaylee? Sure. I'm uh, Kaylee. I'm a clinical and health psychologist. I work uh, in private practice at the Toronto Psychology Clinic full time, but I also do a lot of consults and work part-time at Sheena's Place, working with eating disorders and persons with uh, disabilities and chronic illnesses. Okay, so both of you have very varied roles, it sounds like. All right. Well, the reason I really wanted you both on the podcast today is because I was looking at your Instagram, which is at cripping.therapy on Instagram, and your bio reads... Two disabled therapists explore ways to reclaim and reimagine therapeutic spaces for slash by disabled people. And when I read that, I was very excited. I was very intrigued, interested, and I just wanted to know what exactly that meant. So what does it mean to reclaim and reimagine these spaces? And Kaylee, if you'd like to start. Sure. So for me, I... As a disabled therapist, I didn't really come into my identity as a, even a disabled person or disabled woman until later on in grad school. And it was interesting for me because at first I was kind of like, okay, I want to be a psychologist. I didn't really associate myself as like, you know, disability and psychologist at the same time. But then I started noticing in my program that like people didn't really talk about disability. If it was mentioned it was kind of like as a separate course in a rehabilitation psychology or a health psychology course. So we talk about like being a multicultural therapist, but would never talk about disability. And then when I started finding spaces where people were talking about disability, like critical disability studies, I noticed that psychology was not looked at in a very positive light. And for good reasons, as I found out, because psychology was kind of being used to label disabled people, segregate them, marginalize them, basically like make sure that someone else was in charge of their services and they may not get services that they need. So when I imagine myself and, you know, how do I integrate being disabled with being a psychologist, the only way to do it was to really disrupt the norms that we have in psychology and try to like make it instead of by non-disabled people deciding what disabled people need to do have disabled people kind of in the driver's seat not just me and Gabriella but like everywhere have us decide you know what's helpful what's not so helpful stop trying to be like gatekeepers I don't know if that makes sense but gatekeepers of services and try to make it a bit more flexible so I'll give you another example when I was learning how to be a couples therapist or even a general therapist There's this rule in therapy that like before pre-COVID that therapy was not as uh, effective if it was done over Zoom or over teleconference. And a lot of disabled people would really benefit from having therapy over teleconference. So that's an example of something that like if you had a disabled therapist, it'd be like, well, of course, you know, we have to make it for you and we don't need to like follow these effectiveness rules that I don't even know where they came from or how they started, but like. They just seem to like be another way to make sure disabled people don't get the services they need. Wow. Okay. I'm already learning so much. Quite frankly, that never even crossed my mind. But you're right. The rhetoric really is or was pre-COVID. 
try not to see people over teleconference, but I'm recognizing that probably a lot of therapy spaces aren't accessible. Yeah. So I can definitely see that there are probably a lot of barriers to psychotherapy access that able-bodied folks weren't even considering. Absolutely. Yeah. What about for you, Gabriella? So just to reiterate the question, what does it mean to you to reclaim and reimagine therapeutic spaces? It's such a good question. And I think Kaylee summed it up beautifully, you know, from a psychology perspective. And I think it's very similar as a social worker. I spent uh, the first part of my career working with adults who had acquired injuries and children and youth with disabilities and their families. And I really noticed that being a disabled social worker really gave me a differing perspective, you know, and even though we have our own lived experiences of disability, that's not everyone's experience of disability. And it really forced me to look at my own experiences, but really to try to figure out better ways to accommodate some of the clients I'm seeing and to think about things differently. And social work has also not always the best reputation working with individuals with disabilities for a lot of the reasons that Kaylee already reflected. And so what it means to me is how can not just Kaylee and I use our disabled identities to really look at the roles that we have and also, you know, taking that accountability for the practices that, you know, were in the past and moving therapy forward and those therapeutic spaces and relationships looking at them differently. So that's what it means to me. That's amazing. I love that. Thank you for sharing. So maybe just to back up a little bit, it sounds like a lot of what we're talking about sort of falls under the blanket of what I've heard being called ableism. Basically, from my understanding, it's perpetuating sort of a able-bodied view of the world or how maybe things should be. I don't quite know. And so I'm wondering if maybe, Gabriella, if you'd like to tell me and our listeners, what exactly is ableism? And maybe how does it show up in your work as a therapist? Well, for me, what ableism means is any kind of discrimination against someone based on their abilities. So there is that set of normalized abilities that people have, and I'm using air quotes, but you cannot see me, these normal abilities that people have and and abnormal, anything that is outside of that, anytime there's any kind of discrimination that against it based on those abilities, that that's what ableism is. And it exists in all sort of systems. I work in healthcare. It's rampant. Ableism is rampant in healthcare and the education system, the social services, the child welfare system. These are all systems where I can clearly identify from a systemic and individual micro level where ableism exists. And so how it shows up, it shows up everywhere in my work. And having a disability, I think, makes me more aware of the different ways that it shows up. And like Kaylee mentioned earlier, a lot of individuals who don't have disabilities try to decide what's best for us, what our lives should look like. And that affects, you know, not just individuals with disabilities, but, you know, in that terms of that intersectionality. So individuals who have disabilities and also, you know, other marginalized identities as well and how all those interplay with each other in these systems. You just mentioned intersectionality, which is a word I've heard before. And I think it's kind of referring to how we all have different identities and these tend to overlap with one another. And it and from my understanding, we can't separate out identities, right? So it might mean something different for one's life if they're disabled and black or disabled and queer, et cetera, et cetera. Is that sort of what you're getting at, Gabriella? Absolutely. And how much it would impact if you were disabled, Black, and queer all at the same time, right? And how there's a lot of services that are out there that only really focus on one identity, especially when you have a disability as well. So you can get services because you have a disability, but they're not really, it's not really, those services don't reflect your other identities, so whether that's, you know, someone who, who is from is racialized or who is part of the LGBTQ community, those services may not reflect those. They don't allow space for those.
Kaylee, I'd love for you to answer this question too. Gabriella might have covered what is ableism, but I'm just wondering if you'd be willing to reflect on how it shows up in your work. I think for me, the biggest way ableism shows up in psychology is like this constant need to fix disabled people. And fixing means like bring them back to looking, appearing, thinking, anything like normal. And that normal is based on like a society standard that really doesn't exist, but, you know, we keep pushing it anyways. So for me, it's constant. It could be as I'm going to give more specific examples, but it could be as specific as like a person trying to get therapy and not being able to find any private practice that will accommodate their type of body or the way they think. It could be a person, you know, calling multiple therapy offices and then feeling like, okay, nobody is going to accommodate them. Nobody gets them. There's no services for me. I'm trapped. I feel misunderstood. It could be a disabled person calling a private practice that is accessible, but then they say, oh, no, no, like, I don't see people like you. You have to go to a specialized service, a rehab hospital, because often our services kind of get like funneled into like specialized services when really like disability is, as Gabriella mentioned, it's one part of your very complex identity. So say you want help with like, you know, your your spouse just cheated on you and your disability is just one part of your identity. And then someone says, no, you need to go to a rehab hospital to get therapy. Like that's just so wrong, right? And then when you do go see a therapist, now you've gotten through the doors, let's say you've gotten past all these barriers. You do find a therapist and then they are like, oh, like you're so brave. I can't believe you go out every day like this. You, you inspire me. No wonder you're so sad because you're disabled. And it's just like, these are actual quotes that people have said, that therapists have said to people who are disabled. And it's quite um, disheartening to hear because, you know, who we don't just exist, like our mental health and our physical health go together. Our disability is only one aspect of our identity. Often there's an assumption that if someone has a lot of physical issues, that they don't really, they need to focus on the physical issues. They don't need to focus on the mental health component because it's sort of like a, well, this is more important. And maybe it is, but like you have to let the client decide that at that time. And then there's something called internalized ableism, which is after years and years and years of experiencing this, it's hard for any disabled person not to feel kind of bad about themselves because they've internalized these ideas that they should be normal. They should be fixed. They shouldn't take up so much space. They shouldn't, they shouldn't be so burdensome. They shouldn't cause so much trouble. So then of course you may really need the services, but then feel like you're, you're not deserving of them or it's going to be too much trouble to find them or it's going to be too much, which then can lead to other mental health issues. I think those are all such excellent points. And I'm really realizing just how invalidating therapists can probably often be to their disabled clients. And you're right, it is really disheartening. And so thanks for shedding light on that. You know, speaking of these intersections, and you mentioned, Kaylee, how mental health is important and can sometimes perhaps be overlooked for folks with disabilities, because maybe the focus tends to be around more of the physical aspects. I'm just wondering if you both can speak to individuals with disabilities and perhaps susceptibility to mental illness, maybe in, in this context of a very ableist society. Gabriella, what do you think? Or Can I, can I just add something to that? Yeah. Gabriella and I are both physically disabled But that doesn't mean that, like, I think that we speak from our experience, like anybody, but there could also be a very invisible or mental health or cognitive disability that also interacts with ableism. And I think that we just need to acknowledge that as well. And maybe Gabriella can speak more to that as well. But I just feel like it's not always focusing on physical. It could be also focusing on, like, a person who's autistic might go see a therapist and then they might be like trying to get them to be quote unquote more normal, but their disability is very cognitive as well. Yes. Thank you for that point, Kaylee. I think I also saw on your Instagram, one of your posts about 
how sometimes maybe an individual with autism will attend a therapy session and then the therapist only knows applied behavior analysis, I think it's called. It's very, it sounds like one very specific kind of therapy. And so it's like already therapists might be putting folks into boxes even before they see the client. And it's sort of ignoring this holistic and complicated client by focusing solely on just one relatively small, perhaps, piece of who they are and what they're dealing with at at a certain time. So I think that's also an excellent point about how ableism permeates these fields and can really pigeonhole clients. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Gabrielle, I was wondering about sort of this intersection between mental illness and perhaps physical or cognitive disabilities. And if you know anything about whether individuals with disabilities might be more susceptible, perhaps this is because we live in an ableist society or yeah, if you could speak to that point. I think that's a very complicated question, right? It's sort of like, is it the fact that we are disabled, that maybe there are higher rates of anxiety or depression, let's say. But there's a lot of individuals who, who have diagnoses or have mental health you know, symptoms that they identify as being disabled. So it's really hard to separate those two things. I, I know when I'm working with the disabled population, a lot of times, as Kaylee mentioned, the focus is on whatever their disability is. So if they have an intellectual disability, it's like focusing on, you know, the social skills piece and learning skills, which are also so important, but not a lot of time is spent focusing on their mental health and their mental well-being. And also, you know, really spending that time to understand how, how they're actually feeling about things. It's much more focused on, again, like fitting in what skills you need to be successful, which, you know, that's all, again, ableism in a way, right? Like, what does it mean to be successful? What do people need to fit in and be normal? That's all sort of ableism and people's ideas of what that means. And so when we're thinking of individuals, you know, with mental health, we have to think about how all of these factors interplay. Living in an ableist world where you don't have, you know, your majority of people with disabilities live in poverty. They're not getting enough social services, social supports. They're more likely to be isolated. All of these things. And I could go on and on and on, segregated in schools and, and all of these pieces. What we find is that those are indicators of individuals who may experience more, like let's say, anxiety or depression because of those factors. And it's a lot to do with what they've experienced. And so it's really hard to say, like, is it the fact that, that they have this diagnosis or is it the world that they live in, a combination of these things? And I know I've met a lot of social workers who want to work with, let's say, individuals with disabilities, but feel like their own theoretical approaches, oh, they don't fit. I can't do my traditional therapy with them. I don't know how to you know, do CBT with somebody who has an intellectual disability. I don't know how to get access, how they're feeling. And, and you know, I always say we're taught all of these theories and approaches and we need to be flexible in that. We need to spend the time to get to know the client in front of us. And not just because you had one client with an intellectual disability. Now you're like, oh, yeah, I could do this. And you can see everyone really, it's that uniqueness of these, of these individuals and that they have so many other things going on in their life. And that disability is only part. Of it. And, and I think as therapists, we get so wrapped up on like our theoretical approach and that doesn't always work for everyone. And really taking a step back and looking at things more creatively and really aligning with that, with that client and that family sometimes to figure out what's going to work best for them. I think it's a way to combat some of this sort of like ignoring of how someone's mental health is because they have all these diagnoses. I hope that made sense. It absolutely made sense. It sounds to me like you're advocating for a individualized approach, actually just looking at the client in front of you as a therapist. And instead of jumping in and making assumptions because they have one presentation or another, that approach isn't helpful. We should look at the whole person. Okay. Kaylee, do you have anything to add on this topic? Yeah, I, I think that just to add what the last point that Gabriella said is like an individualized approach. And I know that she does this more than me, but like also a systemic approach of like, how do you 
get a person, you know, out of poverty? How do you get them meaningful? I'm going to say employment, but that also sounds very ableist, but meaningful like time and, and fulfillment in their life, whatever that looks like. How do you, how do you get them so that the systemic things that were pushing them down and causing the mental health issues aren't there? And I think that in psychology, especially, we don't get that training. We're just taught to like, you know, focus on their feelings and, and try to change their feelings. And when maybe, you know, if they had safe and affordable housing, they wouldn't be struggling so much. So like, what, what is it going to, what good is it going to do to do like mindfulness with them if they need, you know, safe and affordable housing? And also like, it's hard to get that in our society right now. So it's very complicated. And I think as a disability affirming therapist, you have to be willing to do that work with your clients as much as possible because like, or else nothing's going to change. And there was something else I wanted to, oh, mental health. I think that the only other thing that we didn't talk about as much was if people don't have access to like preventative health care, including mental health supports, then they're, they're, they are more likely to get mental conditions or disorders. And that's pretty common with disabled people not to be able to access their access doctors, access different tests, either because of medical trauma or because of inaccessibility barriers or other reasons. What do you mean by medical trauma, Kaylee? So medical trauma is something that happens to a, a lot of disabled folks, which is basically what it means to go through the medical system in a body that doesn't conform to medical standards. So it might look like a person with cerebral palsy going through horrible like physiotherapy that's meant to help them to walk straighter. It could look like a person repeatedly going to doctors with a pain condition and being told, I don't believe you, it's all in your head. It could look like someone going to the emergency room. And, you know, as we saw horribly in Toronto, the person wasn't believed and had to crawl their way out of through the front door. You know, that happens to, I run a group with disabled and chronically ill folk. And every week we talk about medical trauma because everybody has experienced it and everybody is struggling with it. And they don't know how to find a doctor that will listen to them, that will believe them, that will support them. There are good doctors out there. They're just, a lot of them have been trained in this very specific model or maybe they don't have a lot of time and patients. I don't know. I don't want to excuse the doctor's behaviors, but whatever happens, people are traumatized because of it. Wow. I really had no idea. And that makes so much sense. And so thank you so much for shedding light on that. Do you have any thoughts on that topic, Gabriella? I was just going to speak to how doctors are trained in, in, you know, the medical model of disability, right? That is their training. And so their focus around disability is, you know, it's not, it's, it's about curing a disability and, you know, getting rid of what they deem as wrong. And they, it's really difficult for them in their training because of how the medical system functions, I think really plays into the fact of how individuals with disabilities experience so much medical trauma, because like the example that Kaylee gave, you know, well, we can't figure out what's wrong with you. So therefore, nothing's wrong with you. Goodbye. (laughs) So it's really, that's really hard on an individual who's struggling, experiencing all these challenges and is not being believed. So not only are they experiencing whatever it is they're experiencing, they're faced with people around them, not believing them, like, what is the point? And then that, you know, brings up that feelings of like hopelessness and that, you know what, maybe, you know, my, I'm, it's, it's not worth it. It's not worth seeking out support. No one's going to believe me. And, you know, there's like that cycle of that you know, mental health deteriorating because of those pieces. And I think when, you know, everyone has a different experience with disability. Some individuals have been disabled their entire life. Some have progressive conditions. Some have, you know, chronic pain. And some, you know, individuals get injured later on in life. There's so many different ways of coming into the disability community, we say. And not all of those things are reflected when people are trying to access health and health care. I can also imagine, too, perhaps someone with a disability experiencing an acute physical health problem, attending a doctor's office asking for help and then being dismissed 
as, oh, it's probably just another symptom of your disability. Eh, if, if it gets worse, we'll talk about it, you know, in a couple months. And, and I can just imagine like how isolating and invalidating that would be. And we do know that individuals with disabilities are less likely to, because it's not really proactive, right? They're less likely to be found, let's say, to have cancer. They're found like when they, when we find out that individuals with disability have cancer, for example, it's usually later on in the stages because when they come to their doctors with symptoms, it's usually excused as other things related to their disability. And it just sort of gets put under that umbrella. And then people are not uh, being able to access the standardized assessments and exams because of that, or they're not accessible. So, you know, even things like having regular, you know, PAPs, for example, they're not always accessible for everyone. Having a mammogram isn't always accessible for everyone. Having MRIs and CAT scans, these things are not to to access as a disabled individual. And that could be for physical reasons, but also managing someone's anxiety, someone's perhaps behavior in those settings can be difficult. So therefore it's a lot of avoid, avoid, avoid until we can't anymore. And then they're more likely to have poorer health outcomes because of that. These things are so complex and yeah, it just really speaks again to our point off the top about how ableism sort of permeates like literally every aspect of society and what a problem that can be. Something I saw on your Instagram, which I think dovetails nicely off this topic, is a post about how disabled folks were historically viewed as poor therapy clients. And I'm just wondering if you believe this harmful stereotype has continued to be perpetuated. And if so, how can therapists, clients, policymakers, how can we disrupt that stereotype? I think it very much still exists. I don't think it's as overt as it was maybe in the 30s or whenever that book was written. So the the post you're referring to was, yeah, basically that because... It, they were talking about physically disabled persons in this one post I was thinking of where, you know, in psychoanalysis, the, the goal is to always get behind your defenses. And the idea is that like disabled people need defenses, psychological defenses to protect them from like the reality of their existence, because it'd be so horrible to come to like full realization of how they exist, that they would just collapse, which is, you know, I think those stereotypes still exist. I think the complicated factor of like ableism in therapy makes it makes it so that disabled people, once they do get to therapy, they're already expecting to be a little bit misunderstood and they might be a little bit resistant to seeing a therapist who they have to educate in every two seconds, you know, what it means to be disabled. And that, of course, my ride was late because I have to rely on this horrible paratransit system. And when a a therapist is like, oh, what's that? Of course, you're just going to shut down. You're not going to want to share this with that person because you're like, they don't get it and they'll never get me. And then the other thing that, as I mentioned before, a lot of therapists are resistant to taking on disabled clients because they think, well, I don't have the training. I don't have the specialized training to deal with this other specialized person which is not necessarily the case, right? Like a lot of disabled people just want kind of like run-of-the-mill CBT and DBT, which is types of therapy that, that everyone kind of like gets. So to kind of like feel like you're being siloed into like a specialized service can be really invalidating. And I think there's a there's an assumption, like, like Gabriella mentioned, when you're using the medical model of disability, you, you see a disabled person as an object of pity. So they might come in and you might think like, oh no, they they must have such a hard life. And then it's really hard to empathize with somebody when you think their life is so hard or you could never live like that. And that's the therapist's best tool is like having that relationship and forming that empathy with their clients. And if they can't do that, then they're not going to be great therapists. And 
just to springboard off of that, it does sound like you're almost speaking to when a therapist sort of puts someone in a box, assumes that they must have this horrible, hard life, and then feeds all their therapy interventions through that lens of like, oh, my poor client. Exactly. Yeah. And may even stop therapy. Or I've heard of disabled clients talking about how they therapist ended early, basically saying like, I can't help you anymore. Or I can't, you know, I can't support you in this because like your problems are too, you know, they can't be solved basically with a CBT model. Oh, that's so frustrating. And just for listeners, CBT stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And we do have an episode on CBT on this podcast. But just in general, it's a widely used type of therapy for folks with depression or anxiety disorders. Okay. Gabriella, do you have anything to add on this topic? Okay. So we've talked a lot about how perhaps able-bodied therapists might put their clients with disabilities into boxes, maybe deny services, have a difficulty, have difficulty conceptualizing their case or rather sort of making judgments about the case to help the the patient or the client. But from from Instagram, I I let folks know that we would be having this conversation and and someone wrote in and asked, how can able-bodied therapists best support clients with disabilities? Gabriella, would you like to start? Yeah, sure. I would say first and foremost, check your bias. Check your internal biases about how you feel about disabled people. And it comes up in, in a lot of ways, right? And there's many ways where therapists who do not have disabilities can be checking their internal biases. When you see a person with a disability, you know, some of them, like we said, are invisible and you may not be able to see them. But when you hear stories or you see someone with a disability, what are your first thoughts? You know, and I have lots of therapists, friends that do not have disabilities. And we've had conversations, how they feel um, about the disabled population or like a particular client they're seeing and, you know, in terms of what's really coming up for them and seeking supervision with regards to seeing individuals with disabilities. I've had many youth with disabilities that I've seen in my previous job who refused to see, like it was really difficult to transition them out of pediatrics because they did not want to see us therapists that did not have a disability because they felt that even though our disabilities were not the same, I had a different kind of understanding. And Kaylee previously mentioned internalized ableism. And so do I think that every disabled therapist doesn't have internalized ableism? No. Kaylee and I also have to be checking ourselves and not assuming, you know, our experiences are that of our clients, right? And that involves having, you know, the group of disabled therapists community, like, and I feel like Kaylee and I speak a lot about this in terms of like, we, we also need to be thinking about that. So it's not just that, oh, because we're disabled, we can do this. We know everything. It's not like that. It's that continuing having that self-reflective practice. And as social workers, we spend a lot of time talking about that. And it looks so different for everyone, whether it is accessing supervision, journaling, talking to colleagues, really getting at like what feelings are coming up for you sitting with those feelings where did those feelings come from that is something that I feel like any therapist should be doing in their work and then when you don't have a disability and you're wanting to work with individuals with disabilities you gotta start there like what are your first thoughts about people with disabilities and explore those and sit with them and get super that's really helpful Kaylee do you have anything to add two things one is I find in psychology, especially like we're really obsessed with like, do we have the competencies to see this client, which is super important, but I think can also get in the way of like seeing, for example, we we often get requests of like, who can see this client with this intellectual disability and no one will see them because, you know, we, we assume that they need a very behaviorist approach and that we need, they need specialist training and sometimes they don't, right? Like sometimes you just need to like, as Gabriella explained before, get to know the client, get to know what they need to accommodate therapy to assist them. They don't need like this kind of like 
I think there's an assumption that just because they have an intellectual disability, they can't do normal therapy. They have to do behaviorist therapy and you can only focus on behaviors. And I think that's ableist and that's a real big problem. The second thing I was going to say is like the opposite of Gabriella, which is very practical things that you could do, which is look around in your, in your therapy practice and try to figure out like, how would disabled people access my space? There's lots of really simple, simple things that you can do, like put in your website, your accessibility of your practice, you know, don't make us call you, don't make us email you and and do all this extra work. Put image descriptions when you're posting things on your like, you know, social media that takes like two seconds and it makes a big difference to signal to someone, even though I don't have a visual disability, I look at that and say, oh, I'm welcomed here, right? I also feel like, you know, that's something that Gabrielle and I will be working on posting more like tips that people can do to make sure their practice is accessible and their websites and things like that. But I feel like there's a quote that I read and I don't, I'm probably not going to get it exactly right. But the idea is like, there's a big difference between, between this is, this space is accessible and this place was built with you in mind. And I feel like that's so important, right? Like it feels so welcoming to know that like someone thought of me and I'm saying me because I, I'm speaking from a disabled person's perspective right now. But, you know, I, I'm also a disabled therapist and I have to think of that opposite perspective too. But someone thought of me and I'm welcome here. And now I feel like I can share. And so what that looks like, is going to take some time to figure out. Like my husband's autistic and I've learned a lot about the autistic community just through him. And like, you know, talking to him and talking to you know, what it is that makes him feel comfortable and other people with autism, because not, not everyone is the same, but like, there are some like community norms that are important to know about that I would never know about if I wasn't sort of like immersed in that culture. And so that makes a difference. And I'm not saying like, go up to an autistic person and be like, teach me everything, you know, because that's not great. But like being able to learn about these community norms in other ways, like There's Facebook groups that are specifically for parents with kids with autism to join where autistic adults will educate them. And I just love it because it's so awesome. And it's so awesome the way like community members get together and be like, yes, we're willing to give up our emotional labor and our time in order to like help these parents, even though like a lot of the parents hate it because they, it goes against everything their doctor says, right? Because it's, adults with autism who are maybe saying things that they don't want to hear, but like maybe they need to hear. Wow, that's pretty great advice because it sounds like there probably are communities online or forums you can read. You could definitely, you know, reach out to to a lot of folks who are probably really willing to help. And yeah, that's wonderful. I think we've sort of talked about this already, but my next question was, what are practical ways to dismantle ableism in the therapy context. And I'm wondering if either of you have anything additional you'd like to add to that discussion. I like all the stuff that Kaylee covered. I was also thinking in terms of policies, like, you know, oh, you need 48 hours to cancel. And you have someone who has, you know, episodic disability, and they may not have 48 hours notice that they're going to have. And, you know, we already mentioned it's hard to access therapy. So like those pieces, I like to spend a lot of time like presenting in terms of like where I used to go to school, for example, to do my master's, to have that lived experience and work like social work experience so that you can start to teach students. And I've always been really fond of having social work students one-on-one and teaching them as a group. And I always say, you know, I want to be the first supervisor they have as a social worker, because I want them, and and I don't even really work with individuals with disabilities in a hospital setting anymore. So specifically, I really, by having me as their supervisor, they are so much more exposed to issues related to accessibility and ableism. We talk about it in ways that they may not even think is going to come up. And so I really focus on, okay, how am I going to help the next generation of social workers to be better social workers and to really have a more anti-ableist practice? Amazing. Kaylee, do you have anything to add? Just to jump off what Gabriella was saying, 
cost sometimes is a big barrier. So making sure you have, I mean, how do you manage your private practice, but then also offer spaces for people that can't afford therapy? What are some considerations one would need to make when finding mental health services for folks with disabilities? And like I said, I think we've touched on a few things, accessibility, the competency of the therapist, policies that are friendly to folks with disability. Is there anything else we might want to consider? What's worked in the past has been if you work for an organization, Collaborating with, let's say you work for an organization that supports individuals with disabilities, collaborating with an organization that works with individuals with mental health, doing cross-training so that the organization that supports mental health concerns becomes more equipped to support individuals with disabilities. It's harder to do from a private practice point of view. makes a lot of sense when you're trying to, because we can't change the entire system. Systems are very much eligibility-based diagnostic-based, issues-based, right? They're very problem-focused. And so there's not much overlap. So by trying to collaborate different organizations coming together and either creating new services or crossover services, that's also an opportunity for those who work for organizations, linking with other ones. I think that's such a great idea. And it sounds like it's not happening as much in practice as much as we would like. Any other considerations one would need to make when finding mental health services for folks with disabilities? I would say um, looking for a therapist, I would like want to know that they know what ableism means. I know that sounds very basic, but, you know, when I remember being at a training for my internship and someone saying to me, what's ableism during the the diversity training that we all had to take? And then the person running the training was like, I don't know. And I was like, this is really sad. So that would be like something that I would want to know. I would want to, I would look out for like, you know, we use a term called disability justice, which is like not just understanding disability politics, but also, you know, race, LGBTQ, other marginalized groups. How do you, how do they understand how people fit into the world is it a just is it just a person and they get a mental health disorder and we treat that mental health disorder or do they understand like all the social forces that impact a person because i feel like that that therapist who has that understanding isn't going to just be like hey let's do six sessions cbt for depression and then you're done good and then get surprised when the person's not that makes sense <laughs> all right I'd like to wrap up our conversation. This has been extremely enlightening and very helpful. And there are two questions I would like to ask you both. So the first one is, what are some common misconceptions about the kind of work you do? And Gabriella, I'd love for you to take a stab at this one. As a therapist? People therapist. Sure, yeah. That I only see individuals with disabilities when majority Mm -hmm. of my private practice is actually individuals without disabilities. That that I I think as a disabled therapist, I sometimes felt that people thought I couldn't understand others' experiences because I, you know, had a disability. In fact, I was quite worried. I've had a disability my whole life. When I first entered the field, I was working with individuals with acquired injuries and my, my own concern. What if they think I won't understand or like I won't be able to support them emotionally because I've had my disability their whole life? And it ended up being like a non-issue. Absolutely. But that was sort of the thoughts that I had. Right. Because we get, again, very focused on our own experiences and they're really thinking that it's not really about that. And yeah, like because I work as a perinatal social worker in acute care, majority of, you know, patients I see don't have a visible or invisible disability. They have, you know, other concerns going on. And so we, that I think people assume that, you know, I wouldn't be able to work with 
the regular population, which is a misconception. Which I no, that sounds really frustrating to be kind of put in a box like that. Ugh. Okay. What about you, Kaylee? What are some common misconceptions about the kind of work you do? I'd have to say, like, maybe a bit of a different experience from Gabriella in that I was trained outside of working with disabled people. And so there was an assumption that, like, my disabled identity actually wasn't very important, but it actually is. And I kind of, like, I find that sometimes, like, I'm in the room with a client and they might not even notice or talk about my disability, which, you know, maybe is is fine, you know, for their needs. But I find it, it's... It was interesting because when I was working with supervisors, they were like, what are we going to do about your disability? Like, how are we going to talk about it with your clients? And I was like, ah, uh, I don't, I don't know. Like nobody ever wants to talk about it. So I find that like disability is kind of like the elephant in the room when it's visible like that, but also nobody want, necessarily wants to talk about the elephant unless it's relevant. So with my disabled clients, we talk a lot about disability for my clients who are marginalized in other ways. I bring it into the room. Because I think it helps. And they have given me feedback that it helps. But for a lot of them, it's like not really talked about, which is interesting. There's also a, a misconception that like, I think this comes from like more like general society, but like the idea that like, I just see really crazy people all day long. And, mm. you know, air quotes, crazy people, like it's really demeaning, right? That idea that like, I see these people who are, you know, can't be integrated into society. And it's like the majority of people I see are just like, you know, you wouldn't be able to tell what was going on with them. Right. And even right. if you did, like, you have no right to say that. Okay. So I think wow. it can be quite backwards in terms of views. And I find that that's an old stigma about mental health is that like, you only see a therapist if you're like, really, really. Yes, absolutely. I think I fight that stigma a lot in my personal life when I talk to friends about getting therapy. Mm -hmm. It's still around for sure. And I thought it was very interesting, Kaylee, how you mentioned that sometimes it's the elephant in the room and sometimes it's the relevant elephant. And I think that's something I definitely didn't consider, but it sounds like it makes sense that that would be the case. And I imagine maybe at times it's difficult to navigate or yeah what do you end up ever bringing it up to to patients on purpose or like kind of naming the elephant I agree sometimes like it's like part of my it's part of my identity the same way as like being a woman is part of my identity so it's it's there and it's relevant when it's relevant as I said when it's relevant but I don't I think the more experience I have, the more I don't worry about it because I'm com more confident in my identity as a person and as a therapist. But when I first started, it was like, should I bring it up now? Should I bring it up later? Oh, should I? And it was just like a constant anxiety that didn't need. Totally. That makes sense. What about for you, Gabriella? I was going to say, I completely agree with Kaylee. A lot of my patients, they see me in person. They don't, it doesn't, it's not a conversation that we, we really have unless it's, something that you know uh, is relevant to their life or they'll re reflect on certain things like the inaccessibility of the space for example like oh wow you can, can't really fit in this room like it has to be very much like in their face and obvious and I, I also think as having a visible disability you know a lot of people with invisibility invisible disabilities can disclose we don't have that option whether we want to disclose or not or whether you know we don't know if it's a safe space to disclose it's sort of there it's obvious, right? And if someone meets me, they know they're not wondering if I'm in a wheelchair. They know I'm in a wheelchair, as opposed to like me having to like specifically disclose a certain thing. And, and, you know, and I don't know, Kaylee wants to speak to like when individuals have like visible disabilities, but also invisible disabilities. And so their visible ones are always disclosed. And as therapists, we may have other things going on with that, you know, we may feel like we want to share or that, you know, might be helpful you know, therapeutically, or that because of life circumstances, we, we have to share with our with our clients. But it, it's just interesting, because it's true, like doesn't really come up until it like comes up. And then it's relevant for them. Like, my patients having a child that may have a disability, then that's what we're talking about. And even that they don't really connect it with me like it will, 
it, it's it has to be done very masterfully. Yeah, sometimes I will disclose that I have chronic pain, but they can't see that on me when they see me. And I find that that can be really therapeutic depending on the client. And I have to decide when it's appropriate to do that and if it will be helpful or not. I can imagine this comes up for folks with all sorts of identities as well. Queer status, even ethnicity in some cases. So thank you for shedding light on this. All right. My final question is, what is the most important thing you'd like listeners to take away from our conversation today? If they just take away one thing. And Kaylee, I'll start with you. That like, just that disability is everywhere and ableism is like a permeating factor that impacts us all. And if you don't know how ableism is impacting you, then you have to do some reflection on that, especially if you're a mental health provider, because if you don't know, it's probably impacting you in ways you don't realize. And it's probably impacting the people that come see you. I love that point. Thank you. And Gabriella, what about for you? I would say that disability is only one part of that person's identity. And it's not something to be feared as a therapist, but really looking at that individual and figuring out how to work with them and support them for what they need, what they're coming to therapy for. So really not making assumptions or jumping to conclusions about folks. All right. Powerful words. Thank you both so much. This was such a lovely conversation. And I really appreciate you being on the podcast. So folks at home listening can find Kaylee and Gabriella on Instagram at cripping.therapy. And thank you both so much for being here today. Thanks for having us. They said that at the same time. It was very adorable. All right. Take good care. And that was today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was hosted by Bev Catherine and produced by Yuri Hladio. Podcasting isn't free. Consider supporting the podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com. You'll get early access to episodes and other exclusive content. You can find us on patreon.com slash stop psychoanalyzing me. Until next time.